So it's a little bit of a dismal psalm to start off with. It doesn't have a very high view of humanity, uh, but a very high view of God. As we enter this uh, psalm, I'm just going to pray, Lord, help us to hear what your Spirit is saying to us, that we might move uh, closer to you, be more open to what your Spirit is saying, and see the things that you're wanting to show us. In Jesus' name, amen. The Psalms are a really good model for prayer because they they start at a level that is our lived experience of life. They they start with all these terms and expressions and things that are happening that are what the people are experiencing. So when the Psalmist uh, says things like, they are corrupt, they've committed abominable deeds, he's looking around and seeing things and he's going, yeah, these people, they're not getting it right. Have you ever had that expression? Any of you drive a car? Have you been in the car when you, you just think everybody on the road is, they, they shouldn't have a licence? Um, everyone, but that's right. That's assumed, of course. <laughs> Somebody's daughter once said to me, I don't know what it is, but Dad keeps getting caught behind idiots on the road. <laughs> And this is the level that the psalmist starts off at, my experience, and he rails. And if you look through the psalms, it's often like that. There's all sorts of cries of the injustices that are going on and the way they're experienced. They're at a, a visceral level. You know, and some of the language is really stuff you shouldn't hear in church. There's psalms about uh, getting your enemies and smashing their pregnant women against rocks and killing their children and all sorts of stuff that you, you kind of, I think we read it and put on the little filter that says, oh, it can't mean that. But actually it's there. It's quite disturbing. But it's this getting the real experience that I'm having at the moment out, being honest about who I am. And that's a, a really key part of the Psalms because once that is done there's a shift to an awareness of a bigger story. And you know that, that awareness, as you just wrote, you know, everybody on the road's an idiot except me. Oh, hang on a minute. No, I'm a bit of an idiot on the road too. Actually, we're all just doing the best we can. And there's this shift to a greater awareness that takes place. So look out for that as we go through this psalm. It starts off with, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Has anyone here ever said in the heart there is no God? You probably don't know because it doesn't really mean the fool has thought specifically, consciously, there is no God. The things we say in our hearts are the things we really value. Jeremiah got it right when he said, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And uh, this is not a thought-out deception. We don't decide to deceive ourselves. It's a survival self-deception. It is a deception that we use so that we can live with ourselves. So, to use the driving example again, We can't drive around all the time thinking of ourselves as really bad drivers. It's just too hard. I mean, think about how angry we get with everybody else. Imagine being that angry with yourself all the time. So we have a self-survival mechanism where we excuse ourselves. We we do a little deception that we're actually 
Jack Brabham, if any of you remember him. He was a Formula One driver, I think. Um, yeah, now we think we're really good drivers and that everyone else is no good. And this is a, a technique we use so that we can live with ourselves because, after all, we have to live with ourselves. We can't not live with ourselves. We hang around with ourselves all the time. It's a deception that protects us from the overwhelmingly threatening reality that wants to press in on us and we want to keep away from our consciousness. Because, you know, there's lots of things quite like that. Let's step back for a moment. I want to use... uh, I have to apologise. I seem to be very political at the moment and uh, eventually you'll get sick of me and maybe run me out of town. But just for the moment, because this is, again, bipartisan political, I'm not being one side or the other, but you'll be aware that, you might be aware, uh, last night or yesterday, the Labor Party decided that they were going to adopt the coalition's towback um, policy on asylum seekers. Now, I don't want to debate the rights or wrongs of that. Whether you believe that's a good thing or a bad thing, that's not of interest to me this morning. I want to look at the dynamic that's happening in this cycle of realities that we're facing here. Because both parties claim that towing back asylum seeker boats is for the good of the asylum seekers. That's the claim. And they say it's because we don't want asylum seekers to drown in that bit of water between Indonesia and Christmas Island and so the the best thing we can do is stop them from coming. So that's what we tell ourselves about ourselves. We are good people. We are saving the lives of asylum seekers. Now if you go back, go down a bit deeper to a deeper level, what's actually happening there is the politicians are trying to save the Australian society from the disruption of having who knows how many asylum seekers flock to our shores if it seems that if you do that you can stay here. And the disruption to our economy and our lifestyle and our society and the politicians are trying to save us from that, aren't they? Well, yes and if you go back a deeper level... What's really happening, and this is actually the critical thing, they're trying to take and hold power. That's what the politicians are doing. They don't really care about the Australian people. They're trying to get power. They're saying whatever they think will get them what they want. They don't even care about the asylum seekers. They're not even really people to them. They are part of a mechanism that will either give them power or take power away from them. That's the issue. But they can't say that. So they say we're trying to save the asylum seekers. Do you see how that works? Now, that's at a safe distance from us, although it's very close. We do that personally as well. There'll be something that is a truth. It's what we say in our hearts. But we can't say that out loud and so we say something else that we find easier to live with. So how do you know what your heart is saying? Actions tell us what the heart is saying. And the psalmist knows that's right. He says, they are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. Or I can't remember your translation said something similar. It's the deeds that show us the heart because we actually enact 
what we really value. We can dress it up in all sorts of justifications, but look at the deeds. The way you spend your life tells you what's in your heart. We're very good at self-justifying and like I say, we have to do it because we have to live with ourselves and conscious thoughts are usually the way we hold our world together. So there has to be a narrative that holds it together. We're saving the asylum seekers' lives by doing this. It's the best thing we can do. And there's a a great um, Love Makes a Way graphic that says uh, turning back the boats equals go and die somewhere else because that's what it really means. We're not actually saving them. We're just saying we don't want you on our shores messing things up. We don't want you to die on our watch, on our conscience. You can die somewhere else. That doesn't matter to us. You know, that's the reality. And we do that as well. We we are doing all sorts of things that then we justify the way we do our lives. It's important that we feel okay about ourselves and that, um, you know, I think that's a reasonable thing to feel okay about yourself, isn't it? You have to feel okay about yourself because otherwise you get depressed and then you're no good to anybody. So there's, survival strategies make sense but they also cover truth and the mature person, the godly person is at work peeling back layers to go deeper into the reality of who we are and what's going on and I think that's what scripture calls us to. You might remember from the cross, Jesus cries out, forgive them Father, for they know not what they do. Now I don't know how you've heard that in the past. For a long time I thought that was Jesus being really pious and a little bit superior. You know, I know what I'm doing but they don't know what they're doing. But I think he was being quite straight. Here are people reacting to a whole range of things and they don't know why and they don't know what they're doing. Their hearts are hidden from them and they're creating a narrative that makes sense to them but it's, it's nonsense. They don't know. They really don't know. And it was in Jesus' resurrection that all of that starts to become exposed and people can decide to know by looking into it. Making sense? A few, few nods and a few people going, what is he talking about? <laughs> the Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God, because frequently we are too busy distracting ourselves. And it goes on in verse 3, they have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. And this is what we do. We distract ourselves and we do it together as a society. The whole society uh, turns aside and becomes distracted and corrupted together because we're social animals. We take cues from one another. You know, if you're in a group, instinctively, unless you've got an Asperger's disorder or uh, something like that, and people do, but otherwise, if you're functioning in a way that most people function, you will, without even knowing, be picking up the cues about what's acceptable in this group and what's not acceptable. And we know about that instinctively and we just do it instinctively and we all know the clangor when somebody says the thing that we don't talk about here and the the room all goes... (gasps) And there's that moment where you've got a decision to make. Do we own that and go into it 
or do we just pretend it didn't happen and walk on? And a classic, again, I'm, I'm going to use some global examples, global political examples, because they're a bit safer because they're not us directly. But did you notice in the last week or so what happened in Greece? The home, the birthplace of democracy? They had a plebiscite where everybody voted on something and they voted a particular way and all the officials around them went... (gasps) And then they just continued as if the vote didn't happen. It was extraordinary and it's hardly had a mention around the world that the people voted... The people said something. Democracy had its moment of shining. And then we just ignored it and moved on and went on with the serious business of life, which is about making them pay their debt. It's amazing how we can accommodate stuff in our psyche just by sweeping it away for a moment. It still exists, but we don't want to acknowledge that it's there. And I wonder what will happen in Greece now, given that... In no uncertain terms, the people have made it clear what they think, but the government and the governments around them are saying, oh, well, bad luck, bang, and uh, we'll, we'll find out what that means. They have turned aside, they've become corrupt, there's no one who does good, not even one. And, uh, of course, the psalmist is speaking in those absolutist terms. You know when you get really... My kids do this all the time. You've never done such and such. Never? Do you remember this morning when we did that? Never! And we get in that space where we go to the absolute. It's the only way to make the point of how strong our feeling is. I feel so outraged about this. I've got to use the most extreme terms. And the psalmist is doing that because, of course, there would have been some people doing good, or at least a little bit like good, but he's in that place of describing how corrupt the whole thing is. Uh, do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up my people as bread? So here we have a, a very graphic illustration. There's no cannibalism in Israel, so they're not actually eating the people, but it's as if they have so little regard in their lifestyle of, I mean, this speaks to us, the lifestyle of consumption. Our consumption is harming other people. It's taking away their life. It's like we are consuming their life and that's a reality in our world today Uh, to go back to the asylum seeker issue none of us would see ourselves as oppressing anyone really would we but for the asylum seeker who's fleeing a situation that's completely untenable just us sitting on our hands is experienced by them as oppression because they're not going to be able to access the life they need and again, these, these issues are complex and I'm not offering a way through that. I'm just observing the dynamics that happen in the world and how we're all implicated in a way. And if we don't want to be, that's kind of bad luck because we live and we're part of it and that's the way it is. And it's uncomfortable for us to be aware of that because, again, with the, that issue, the asylum seekers, there's not a clear way forward, is there? I don't have an answer to it. Do you have an answer? I, I have a a problem with a solution, but I don't have a solution to the problem, if you know what I mean. So uh, the way we're solving it at the moment, I think, is disastrous. But if they said to me, so what would you do, David? I'd go, well, we'll let him in and see what happens. Yeah, so that'll get a lot of votes. 
Okay. We might offer charity. Sometimes charity is the way we try to maintain a system so that it doesn't all break down. So uh, you'll notice that the ALP, they've said we're going to tow back the boats, but we're going to increase our um, refugee intake. So we're going to do something. It's actually, it's good, but if you really could see the truth of it, it's more about conscience appeasement than solving the problem because the numbers that we will raise our refugee intake to are so minuscule compared to the need. That's about us feeling better about ourselves. It's again that same dynamic which we have to do to live with ourselves. We are good people, aren't we? Aren't we good people? I'm a good person. You're a good person? I know James is a good person. He even comes when he's sick. (laughs) And we have to do that to live, but you know, let's be aware of the reality that's going on here, like the psalmist is aware of this reality. Because when there are things we are unwilling to see, we live in dread. Because even though we are unwilling to see them, we know they are there. So you can talk yourself out of a whole range of things but once you know something in your heart you know it and it will push on you and you will have dread that it will become apparent when you don't want it to become apparent and the psalmist picks that up they are in great dread there is a reality in this situation which they are not accounting for and it will make itself known and they will find out and they don't want to And we are they at certain times in our life where we want to hold things away from ourselves but we know it's there and it will emerge. And the stronger we don't want it to emerge, the more our dread that it will emerge. Let's get on to the the more hopeful bit which is at the end. And you see this change. In this psalm it's a more subtle change because it goes from uh, there they are in great dread for God is with the righteous generation. At least some light's coming in here. The dread is created because God is with those who the people are oppressing. And so if the people are oppressing others and those others are the ones who God is with, who do you think is going to win that one? Who do you think is going to stand in the end? And those who are oppressing know it. Some part of themselves know it. And so the dread as God is with the righteous and there are those who would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted but the Lord is his refuge. So we see this dynamic that happens in the world and we're all part of the world so we'll see it in ourselves as well where we will do things that are oppressive. We will hold down truth and hold down people and try to maintain our lifestyle at the cost of someone else's. We will do that and we won't pay attention to those who are poor or afflicted because it's just too hard or too uncomfortable, but the Lord is their refuge. God is with those people. And if we want to be with God, that's where we need to be. 
Because God is there. And if we shut those people out, we shut God out. And I think that we can actually experience that in our hearts when we close the door to someone. When the situation is just too difficult, we are actually shutting down part of our life. And God is in opening our hearts and in that meeting that might be uncomfortable but takes us into new places. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores his captive people. Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. See, there's so much hope in the people of God. Always hoping for more than is currently apparent. Now, not more stuff. I've just moved house. I don't want more stuff. But more depth, more richness, more grace, more love, more cohesive community, deeper knowing, more amazing grace, greater compassion, opportunities for deep healing, becoming more human, restoration, salvation, those things are there for the people of God. Not more stuff, but more of the kingdom. God's people hope for shalom. Shalom is not, it's peace. It's not the absence of war or conflict, which is just kind of that tense state where no one's actually physically hurting each other. But shalom is that place where we know ourselves and we know the other and we engage in a way that is loving and restorative and helpful and encouraging and draws out the fullness of life, that is shalom. We know very little about it. There are moments we taste it, maybe with particular relationships, sometimes in family, sometimes in the church. But that is the hope of the kingdom. That is the hope of the psalmist. And that is the hope that we can only get to when we are honest about the other stuff honest about our dishonesty because shalom is about who we really are. It's not who we're trying to be. It's not who we want everyone to think that we are. It's about what we say in our hearts. You see, the righteous say in their hearts, there is a God and God is with me. Now, they don't tell each other that and they don't pronounce it all the time, but you can see it in the way they live. You can see it in their attitudes and their values and the way they relate to people. You know, this person knows in their heart there is a God and God is with them. When I first came to Manly uh, 20 years ago, in the first few years there, I had the privilege of being with an older gentleman as he died and his wife was there and granddaughter. It's actually, I think, the only time I've been with someone at the moment when they've died. It was a very precious moment and we we were able to pray for him and usher him into the presence of God and he was a godly man and there was no fear in it. But his his wife was there and a a woman of her generation, she was very dependent on her husband uh, financially and socially and in all sorts of ways and that was a very critical moment for her. She'd lost her husband. In the Old Testament days, if you'd lost your husband, you lost your identity and your security and everything else. And there was just echoes of that with this woman. But in her heart, she knew 
God. And yes, there was a, an appropriate grieving process that echoed and flowed and so forth. But this woman continued, continues, she's still around, continues to blossom. She served people in all sorts of beautiful, unassuming ways. She learnt new skills so that she could do new things. She knew in her heart there's a God. There's always hope. There's always more to do. There's always something you can offer. Is that making sense? As we share in communion this morning, one of the things we do is acknowledge that we needed Jesus to come and die. In a sense, we needed Jesus to come and die to help us to see what we were unwilling to see. And in a sense, his death shows us that very thing, that most of us, most of the time, would rather murder an innocent person than own our own violence. Now, that sounds a bit weird, but that's basically what happened. An innocent man died because people couldn't be honest about how violent they were. And when we gather around this table, we acknowledge that. We also acknowledge that we belong to each other. Now, there's people here that you might like and other people here that you might find strange or difficult or don't know, but we belong to each other and that's part of the mystery of the body of Christ. And as we break the bread, as we take from the cup, we are inviting a disruption to our comfortable lives. We're inviting a disruption to our secure borders. We are declaring our hope in something larger, more important, richer, which is the body of Christ. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your amazing grace as we acknowledge at the very start this morning you know our hearts and the things we say in our hearts and you invite us to become aware of those things too. They are all held by your grace and you want to draw us out that we might be honest people, honest with ourselves and honest with one another, that we are people of love, not those trying to love or trying to look like we love, but that we genuinely love. And we thank you that your spirit, your forgiveness, your salvation is all about that in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.